Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome everyone to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Irene Pramod, a host on this channel, and today I'll be in conversation with Dr. Miriam Luque, author of the incredible new book, Indonesians and Their Arab World, Guided Mobility Among Labor Migrants and Mecca Pilgrims, which was published by Cornell University Press in January 2021. Miriam Looking is a social anthropologist and postdoctoral fellow at the Martin Buber Society of Fellows at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Her doctoral research, which she completed in 2017 at the University of Freiburg, Germany, focused on the experiences of Indonesian labor migrants and Mecca pilgrims circulating in the Indian Ocean world. Miriam's publications speak to a number of issues regarding pilgrimage, Islamic morality, gendered mobility, transnational identity formation, and saint veneration. In addition to her recently published book, her work has also appeared in journals such as Transregional and National Studies of Southeast Asia, Social Sciences, and Food, Culture, and Society. Thank you, Miriam, for agreeing to join me here on the New Books Network. I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, and I'm really excited to delve into it with you today. Yeah, thank you very much um, for inviting me and for giving me the opportunity to talk about the book. It's my pleasure. Um, so we'll, it might be good to perhaps start off um, with a brief sort of bio introduction to you as the author. So um, could you tell us a few words about your own personal background and what led you to become an anthropologist? Yeah, so um, I grew up in a small village in northern Germany, and I didn't know anything about um, Islam, the Arab world, or Indonesia. But after high school, I wanted to do a gap year, and I was looking for organizations. I had an interest in Asia, and I ended up on Nias Island, which is a small island off the west coast of North Sumatra, which back then Mm -hmm. was badly affected by the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004. And it was on Nias that I um, got to know about anthropology. I met anthropologists there. And also in this tsunami rehabilitation and reconstruction work, I understood how important it is to have local um, specific knowledge of how a society works, what is important for people. You cannot just build new houses if these houses do not accommodate, accommodate the needs of the people. So that's how I came to anthropology. I also traveled Um, During that time, um, I spent a year in Indonesia and um, I visited Java um, where I met um, more Muslim people because Nias is a Christian island. And then I felt that there are worlds between Nias and Java even, not to speak of the worlds between my own small um, German town and uh, Indonesia. And um, the whole realization of how limited our horizon is um, got me interested in anthropology And specifically, I visited Gajamada University in Yogyakarta and I went to the Department of Anthropology and the people there told me, you have to go um, and study at the University of Freiburg if you are from Germany, because we have a collaboration with Freiburg. And it turned out that anthropologists from the University of Freiburg um, invite anthropologists from Indonesia, from Gajamada University to do research in Germany. And I found that fascinating that there are 
Indonesian anthropologists who do research on our society, on the German society. And I was very curious in getting to know what are their perspectives. And uh, I did go to study in Freiburg um, anthropology and Islamic studies. And I did participate in these exchanges with Gajamada University, where um, I learned a lot from these reciprocal exchanges of perspectives. Um, and in Islamic studies, I uh, got to know a little bit about the Arab world. I started to study Arabic. I went myself to visit some Arab countries. I was in Syria and Morocco. And um, yeah, all of this led me a bit to this uh, topic of Indonesia and the Arab world. Yeah, it's fascinating because it's also incredible to kind of see how much of fieldwork is often a combination of various accidental discoveries and encounters. So, yeah, that is that's fascinating. And um, could you also tell us a bit about how you came to write um, this book, Indonesians in the Arab World? Um, for instance, how did the idea develop and why did the question of religious and transnational mobility in particular interest you? Yeah, when I was based in Freiburg, I um, visited Indonesia a lot for various projects. And I think it was a time over about 10 years that I was going back and forth between Indonesia and Germany. And I was very interested in Islamic cultures in Indonesia. As I said before, I didn't know a lot about Islam before I traveled to Indonesia. And when I began to study Islamic studies um, at the University of Freiburg and also in Syria and Morocco, I realized that when I came back to Indonesia with my knowledge in Islamic studies and also Arabic language in particular, I found a new connection with people in Indonesia. A lot of people in Indonesia were excited that I spoke Arabic and they saw it as a uniting element that we can chit chat a bit in Arabic or that I um, could even read um, in the Quranic or schools the traditional pesantren in Indonesia People would sometimes also write the local Javanese language and Arabic script. And it was interesting that I was able to read the script. So there were new points of encounter because of my knowledge of Arabic. And um, back then I was based um, in Freiburg in the Southeast Asian Studies Network called Grounding Area Studies and Social Practice. And um, my supervisor, Judith Schlee, did research on perceptions and images of the West in Indonesia. And then we thought it would be interesting to look also at other centers and reference points among Indonesians, where the West is maybe an important reference for, point for modernity. Um, the Arab world is um, important for Muslim identities. And because of my own knowledge that I had uh, about um, Islamic studies and Arabic, it seemed very fitting that I would work um, on that topic, and it um, felt like a, a good entry point that I had this connection um, to people. And also over the years, I realized that what I found was a fascinating connection and maybe gave me a little bit of an idea of how people can feel connected in the faith of Islam as Muslim brothers and sisters. I, I found that on the other hand, there was also a lot of skepticism about so-called Arabness, or as people in Indonesia would say, Arab, that they would describe someone as being Arab or being Arab-minded. Um, and I found that in these cases, the term Arab was used in a denouncing manner, or also that uh, there is the buzzword Arabisasi in Indonesia, the Arabization. Mm -hmm. 
that is used in a denouncing manner of describing other people as, um, yeah, as turning out a change of Islamic traditions in Indonesia. So this is a development that I observed over the years of visiting Indonesia. And then um, I, I thought it's interesting to look into this and to research this. Absolutely. And also something that runs throughout your book, I found, was a sort of transnational imaginary of the Arab world in the local world of the people of Indonesia themselves. And so the, this interplay between the transnational and the local is something that I found to be very, very interesting in the context of your own book. Um, but before we dive straight into the book, I'd like to also ask if you could briefly take us through the historical context of this book and its findings. For instance, um, how do we understand the contemporary labor migration flows from Indonesia to the Persian Gulf vis-a-vis longer histories of mobility and the spread of Islam in the Indian Ocean world? And um, this is something that you touch on very, very much in your book, Um, but it'd be great, I think, for our audience if you could also sort of present the historical context that your book is sort of grounded in. Yeah, sure. Um, Something that I didn't say or that I maybe will also talk about a bit more later is that um, how I came to to this idea to compare labor migrants and Mecca pilgrims. Um, But I will probably say more about that later. Um, About the historical background, um, the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca is one of the five pillars of Islam and it's obligatory um, for Muslim people, for people who can physically and um, financially and spiritually afford to do this pilgrimage to the holy sites in Mecca and Medina. And um, of course, it's for people, for, for Muslim people all over the world, it's a lifelong goal. Um, it's something that many people save up to and that they want to accomplish. Now, when we go back in history, Indonesia being located um, far away from the Arabian Peninsula, divided through the Indian Ocean. Um, Of course, given this um, geographic location, for many people in Indonesia, it was difficult to do the Hajj to Mecca and Medina. And um, in the 15th um, century, when pilgrimages from Indonesia to the Arabian Peninsula started, this voyage was a more individual endeavor, and it was more reserved to people who could afford this costly undertaking. Um, Later, it was also um, connected to study journeys and to trade and to economic activities. So we can really speak of a mixed migration historically, that um, studying, working and doing the Hajj was something that um, went together um, and where people would stay for much longer time periods in the Hejaz, um, study with sheikhs there, and they had communities of um, so-called Jawi people, of people from the island of Jawa. That's something Michael Lafan worked on a lot. Um, so this was, uh, again, it was something that happened in scholarly communities, um, mostly men traveling there and staying for many years on the Arabian Peninsula. And when they came back, they would often be community leaders um, in society. Um, That's the actual physical journeys to to the Arabian Mm -hmm. Peninsula, but there is also in Indonesia a lot of historical stories about um, mystical journeys, um, people who probably could not 
travel there physically, but who traveled there in meditation, in dream journeys. There is the legend of Sultan Agung, um, famous um, leader on the island of Java, who traveled to Mecca in a dream journey and who took a lump of earth from Mecca and placed it on its future gravesite in Imogiri, thus creating a Mecca or um, yeah, a holy place in Java. And um, these dream journeys or these more mystical and spiritual connections are also important for the people who came from the Arabian Peninsula, traders, but also Muslim scholars who spread Islam in Indonesia. So that's the historical um, connections um, through trade, economic activities, um, Islamic scholarship and pilgrimage. Um, in Dutch colonial times, the travels to the Arabian Peninsula from Southeast Asia became much more um, structured and regulated also with the invention of the steamship. And it's interesting that uh, the Dutch were actually the first um, non-Muslim country to, to have a travel um, office in Jeddah. So um, this is also where we see that with the pilgrimage, there is also business um, and more and more people were able to to make this journey. Today, the pilgrimage um, to Mecca in Medina is um, a highly structured and um, vastly organized um, mass e event um, where millions, I mean, if it's not the COVID pandemic, um, millions of people come to Mecca, Mecca every year on the designated dates for the Hajj. And the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia reg regulates the numbers of pilgrims through pilgrimage quotas. So Indonesia, as being home to the largest Muslim population in the world, is allocated a relatively high uh, quota in total numbers. So they make the biggest, um, the largest national group of pilgrims every year in Mecca. And mm -hmm. um, this, of course, demands a master plan um, of organization. And there are um, 10 charter flights each day over a period of a month to bring all people to Mecca to be there on the designated dates for the Hajj and the Ministry of um, Religion and all the sub-departments um, handle um, this. So um, it's also a big uh, bureaucratic um, and organizational effort. And it's quite sim interesting that um, for labor migration, there are similar structures when it comes to the organization or even the the flights or even the the airport the hajj terminal in jakarta is outside the hajj season is being used for labor migrants um, and for labor migrants it's of course different government departments but we see that for both labor migration and pilgrimage the indonesian government is a very important um, actor in making this mobility happen in organizing and facilitating it in um, as I say in the book, guiding people's um, mobility. Um, so, yeah, in the 21st century, both labor migration and mobility are highly structured journeys. And for the pilgrimage, this would ha mostly happen in guided uh, travel groups and labor migrants are being recruited um, through migrant agencies. And they are also coming together in cohorts where they are prepared together in preparation centers. But then, of course, they would um, later on uh, have a more individual experience as most of the Indonesians work as private um, domestic workers um, in private households in the Gulf. 
Um, so there are differences and similarities. Um, and in some cases, uh, there is also a mixture between labor migration and pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this term guided mobility, I personally found it very productive to think with. Um, and we'll come back to it in um, the following, in one of the next questions. But um, in terms of method, I really sort of appreciated and admired how you moved across three planes of comparison throughout the book between the urban and the rural within Indonesia, between the coastal and inland regions um, of, of the region of Indonesia and migrants and pilgrims to Mecca in Saudi Arabia, as you sort of just laid out now as well, and the distinctions between both groups. Um, and I wanted to ask, what did you hope this three-way comparison would help you achieve in the book? Yeah, so um, in the beginning, I did not actually plan to do a comparison. Um, I like the my research approach was very open winded it was this idea of having an inductive approach or at least semi semi inductive approach of going to to the field and to understand what is important to the people so as i said there was this research project on images of the west in indonesia so i went to indonesia and i had this idea of working on images of the arab world and i had different ideas of where to look for this in quranic schools in islamic universities i thought more of education in the beginning but then um it was this um, hajj season and i realized that this is the biggest movement, the, the biggest event of mobility that happens annually um, in Indonesia. And um, also during my own um, travels to Indonesia with layovers in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, I realized that, wow, labor migrants and Mecca pilgrims actually sometimes sit next to each other on the plane. But mm. then the two fields, labor migration and pilgrimage, seem to be so different. Pilgrimage is a spiritual experience it's also a source of social um, status or social prestige in Indonesia whereas labor migration is something that happens for people who who search for higher or better um, income uh, who maybe do not have perspectives back uh, in their home in Indonesia and they are willing to go abroad to search for higher incomes. So in a way, labor migration and Mecca pilgrimage present two contrasts in these ambivalent Indonesian engagements with the Arab world, where for the Mecca pilgrimage, the Arab world is, of course, the Holy Land. And it's this lifelong goal of going to Mecca and it's home to the holy sites. Whereas in the context of labor migration, there is actually often a rather negative image of the Arab world being drawn in Indonesian public in, in the media coverage, where we can read a lot about exploitation and abuse of migrant women and uh, on, in protests of um, human rights NGOs or labor migrant NGOs, um, there would actually often be this demonization of Arab countries or the idea that, um, yeah, there is evil and exploitation there and uh, human rights abuse. So um, I thought it's interesting to look at these um, two contrasting experiences with the Arab world, even though later I also realized that they are not always so contrasting. 
that's maybe only the first uh, impression. Um, and then also during my research, it was very interesting that when I started my research in central Java, and I said what I'm interested in is how people look at the Arab world, a lot of mm -hmm. Javanese people said, oh, you should go to Mecca Island. It's not, sorry, <laughs> now I... So you should go to Madura. So that was yes. a, probably... Um, <laughs> so when they said, you, you should go to Madura Island. And um, mm -hmm. that I said Mecca now is maybe also because people say sometimes um, Madura is one of the islands of... Uh, one of the terraces. It's one of the terraces of Mecca in Indonesia. Also, Aceh mm -hmm. is described as a terrace of Mecca. And um, those are by names for more conservative um, areas in Indonesia. Um, but also, as we see, often by names for regions that are more coastal and that have this historical um, coastal connection to the Arab world. And a lot of people said, um, go to Madura because Madura is um, the people in Madura, they are like the Arabs. And then I realized mm -hmm. that this term Arab in, among Indonesians can also be a term that is used to describe people in one's own country. And um, I was very, very curious about this. And then I did go um, to Madura and I um, came up with this um, comparison also between Central Java and Madura to understand that um, to think about the Arab world is on the one hand, to, th to think about transnational mobility and transnational or transregional connections between Southeast Asia and um, the Arabian Peninsula. But on the other hand, it's also the Arab world in Indonesia and how this um, term uh, or this idea of something Arab is imagined within Indonesia. Absolutely. And... There are these competing, but also not competing, ideas of Arabness within Indonesia itself that sort of came out and sort of popped up from the book time and time again. And um, we will get into this um, in more detail as well. But um, perhaps since your book is sort of divided into these four main chapters, perhaps it might be um, productive to sort of go through each of the chapters, um, starting with the first one. Um, and so if I had to do that, so the first chapter of your book, um, it traces the making of a transnational Arab imaginary, as you just told us, um, in Indonesian Islam and the Arabization of Indonesian society itself. And I was intrigued by how local Indonesians grappled with what it meant to be Muslim alongside what it meant to be Arab vis-a-vis -vis the authentic Arabness of the Middle East. Um, and so I wanted to ask, how do Indonesians straddle these multiple Islams and multiple ideas of Arabness, even as they travel to and from the Arab world itself? Yeah, so um, the first um, chapter draws a lot on the historical, uh, the work of historians like Michael Lafan, um, Eric Taliakoso, Mona Abaza, Chiara Formici, who all have shown that... Um, the Indonesian engagement with the Arab world is really multifarious. And the, the Arab world is also an imaginatory construct in Indonesia, where um, I mentioned the Muslim saints before, the Muslim saints who brought Islam to Java. Um, 
it is assumed that um, these Muslim saints have a diverse um, cultural and ethnic background, and some of them came probably um, from the Arabian Peninsula, probably from Persia and China. But then in everyday rhetoric in Indonesia, they are still often referred to as Arab saints. And um, the interesting thing is that on the one hand, it is acknowledged that they came from outside Indonesia and probably from somewhere close to the birthplace of Islam. But on the other hand, they also localized Islam in Indonesia and they used a lot of um, pre-Islamic cultural elements to spread the teachings of Islam. So there is mm -hmm. a simultaneous localization um, and if we want so Arabization or introduction of some elements um, of Arabness that are or that can be seen as an intrinsic part of being Muslim because the Arabic language is the language of the Quran, it's a holy language, it's the language of the prayers. Then there's also the Arabic alphabet that was being used. So um, Arabic um, elements of Arabic were in different ways over history integrated into um, Indonesian culture. And this is also the reason why the use today of the term Arab or Dunia Arab, the Arab world, or Orang Arab, Arab people, is used in such, a, in such an ambivalent way that it can be used in an acknowledging manner, that um, Arab is something that is connected to the birthplace of Islam, the history of Islam, the Prophet Muhammad. Um, there is the concept of the Sunnah, to live in the tradition of the Prophet. Um, so some elements of Arabic culture and customs may, might be considered as being part of the Sunnah, Whereas on the other hand, as I said before, Arab can be used in a denouncing manner. And there is this phenomenon in Indonesia of talking um, about different forms of Islam. For example, Islam Jawa as Javanese Islam or Islam Pribumi, the Islam of the indigenous people or the natives. That's something Martin Slama worked on. And um, Martin Slama showed that this concept of Islam Pribumi, for example, that was very popular in the 1980s, was contrasted with a rather gloomy image of Islam Arab. So in this context, Islam Arab and Islam Pribumi or Islam Arab and Islam Java, or also today Islam Nusantara is a new concept, the Islam of the archipelago. Um, so here, Arabness or the attribute Arab is used in a contrasting manner to make a differentiation between the local and the foreign. Um, so it is a cultural differentiation, um, which says to be Muslim is not to be Arab. But on the other hand, some elements of Arabness are intrinsical part of being Muslim. And this is also politicized between um, the big leading um, Muslim umbrella organizations in Indonesia, the Nahdlatul Ulama in Muhammadiyah, um, some new groups, especially Salafi groups. And I found that here this term is often used within Indonesia um, to describe something that happens in Indonesia rather than describing something that happens uh, on the Arabian Peninsula. Right, right. And did you, in your uh, fieldwork, come across conflicts that arose between these sort of different definitions, different understandings? of um, Islam vis-a-vis -vis the Arab world? Um, and if there were any sort of discrepancies or conflicts, how people managed them? 
Yeah, so what I described um, about these contrasting concepts of Islam Arab and Islam Nusantara, this is something that happens very much on the political stage. Whereas I was researching with um, with ordinary people in their everyday life, with labor, labor migrants and pilgrims um, before they would go or after they returned from the Arabian Peninsula. So I was more interested in the everyday experiences and how, of course, these political controversies matter um, in in people's lives. And I did find that in Madura, there was sometimes conflict about this, where um, Madura is an island um, that tends to be seen as cut off from Java, that is also mm. economically less developed than Java. Um, but the Madurese people are also very proud of um, being very pious Muslims and as being very well connected among each other through domestic migration in Indonesia, but also international migration. And um, in Madura, a lot of people were upset about these um, rather essentialist classifications of Islam Arab because they said this cannot be denounced as Arabness. We are living in the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad and if we dress in a certain way, if we put on the white juba, it's a white garment from the Arabian Peninsula, this doesn't mean that we ideologically um, turn towards Islamic traditions from the Arabian Peninsula. It's just our way of living in the tradition of the Prophet. And um, I realized that in Madura, a lot of people feel misunderstood from other Muslim communities in Indonesia. and. this is probably something where there is a little bit of a conflict in this engagement with the Arab world. Um, And also sometimes among labor migrants, I would realize that of course there have been also conflicts within their working contracts. And um, Mm -hmm. this is something where some people, some labor migrants um, are quite um, successful and they send home, um, financial remittances and they help um, they, they are able to support their families but other labor migrants do make these negative experiences that I talked about before and um, in this regard they would also make this sharp differentiation between religion and culture and to say we might be united in religion but culturally we are very distinct um, from the Arab people also when it comes to the way of interpreting Islam or what it means to be Muslim. And some labor migrants would even say, um, and this is a joke that actually came up quite often in my research, um, we were always wondering why the why God sent all his prophets to the Middle East. And now after we've been there, we realize that the people there are so harsh and violent that they needed a prophet to teach them how to behave. Whereas the Indonesian people are already soft and refined and kind and polite. Um, So there is probably not an open conflict, but there is this um, sense of having different approaches to interpreting what it means to be Muslim. Yes, absolutely. And um, I suppose in this context, the experience of the labor migrants and the Mecca pilgrims and the conflicts that both of these groups have with the Arab Arab populations in the Middle East, it's fundamentally different. One is sort of sort of spiritually sort of driven, the other one for economic reasons, perhaps. But um, in chapter two, um, you focus 
quite a bit on um, pilgrimage tourism and the, and the kinds of dilemmas that brings about for Mecca pilgrims, the, the pilgrim group. Um, and I was wondering if we could sort of um, talk about that um, because you describe how this thing called pilgrimage tourism to Mecca seems to have elicited a wide range of responses from Indonesian pilgrims and locals alike. Uh, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the contested relationship between wealth, wealth accumulation, capitalism, morality, and religiosity among Indonesian Muslims, um, as well as how they understand success in both material and moral terms. Um, and um, how do pilgrims and non-pilgrims alike negotiate local meanings of success and failure in such a highly transnational context? Um, and the tensions that might emerge between, say, um, wealth accumulation and uh, the sort of capitalistic sort of um, undercurrents in this thing called pilgrimage tourism and ideas of morality and religiosity. Yeah. It, what I um, haven't mentioned so far is that for Mecca, there are two different types of pilgrimages. There is the Hajj, which is one of the five pillars of Islam, um, which is obligatory and which can only be done during a specific time of the year. Um, and that's why the numbers of participants are also so strictly limited. Um, there is another um, pilgrimage, that's the Umrah. And the Umrah is technically um, some rituals of the Umrah are part of the Hajj. But these rituals can be done at any time or almost any time of the year. And mm -hmm. um, travel agencies um, probably realize that this is a big um, market um, potential or also people in Indonesia were disappointed that they still have to wait many years until they can do the Hajj because the waiting lists are so long that um, they were inquiring about possibilities to do this um, so-called small pilgrimage, the Umrah. Um, so in some regions in Indonesia, the waiting lists are up to 30 years. For example, in Madura, where people are very um, pious and... Um, of course, thinking that one has to wait 30 years until the departure to the Hajj, it's understandable that some people are afraid that they won't make it to Mecca at all, um, especially older people. And because of that, um, there is a boom in Umrah pilgrimages and a general boom in religious tourism in Indonesia. And the difference is that the Hajj would be mainly administered by the government while the Umrah um, is the business of private travel agencies. And um, I talked to a lot of travel agents and they um, said that this is really a booming business and um, that it is, um, I mean, this was before the pandemic, of course, that it is increasing um, every year. And um, mm. the interesting thing is that a lot of the travel agents found that being a travel agent in a travel agency for religious tourism, tourism and enabling people to go to Mecca is a pious deed. That um, this is also can be considered as a religious act because they support people in traveling to Mecca. So a lot of them were um, 
also very pious um, and practicing Muslims and um, they had traveled to Mecca themselves um, several times often and they were underlining that this spiritual experience is so extraordinary that they want to make it accessible for more people. Um, mm. So there is, um, as you said in your question, there is this um, interrelation of capitalist activities um, and religious morals or um, the idea of um, piety. This is in, in other fields in Indonesia and in fashion, for example, uh, we see similar tendencies, um, what Carla Jones has described as pious consumption. And um, you mentioned the term success. So I found that it's quite interesting that in this field of this booming pilgrimage business, But quite interestingly, also in labor migration, success is a buzzword that there are ideas of a spiritual success, uh, like a spiritual fulfillment, uh, but also economic success um, as part of leading a pious life, like a pious or a morally good economic success. And um, for the Hajj pilgrims, there is also the concept of becoming a Hajji Mabrur, which is... Um, which literally means that the Hajj is accepted by God, but it can be translated as becoming a virtuous Hajj returnee, where the people who have been to Mecca return as um, better Muslims, as people who have a morally um, improved uh, behavior and who become more pious. Um, and then again, again, this, these interesting similarities with the labor migrants where the labor migrants are also expected as being uh, maintaining their moral integrity, especially because of these reports about abuse and exploitation that um, labor migrant agencies would often preach to the migrant women that um, they should, um, that they should um, maintain um, moral values, that they should, should stick to politeness and to modesty um, to go through this experience and not to get into trouble while being there. Like this idea that abuse and exploitation can happen because of a personal moral failure uh, where these issues are not seen as a structural problem, but rather as an individualized failure, um, claiming that if one keeps this... Um, piety and morality, then the migration will be successful and there won't be any um, problems. Right, right. And so ideas of success and failure, they are um, sort of crucial, would you say, to these people's experiences of um, mobility and of worship, really. Um, and would you say that ideas of success and failure are in some ways intertwined um, in the case of the pilgrims? Mm, yeah, definitely. I I was surprised that um, I hardly encountered any stories about failure. But mm -hmm. um, it is also in another way that every success story um, could be the story of a failure of someone else who is, for example, a non-pilgrim. Like when we, we talk about mobility, it's also to talk about um, immobility. Some people who will not go on the Hajj and who will stay home. So this is not openly um, described as failure, but on the other hand, the emphasis of success suggests that for other people, there is not this um, success. So it marks this um, 
distinction of Hajj returnees who return with a higher social status um, and the ones who did not accomplish the Hajj. Mm, right, right. Yeah, And it is interesting to hear that um, experiences of failure were a lot less salient in your fieldwork um, than ideas of success were. That is, that is quite interesting. Um, if you had to shift gear a little bit to move to chapter three, um, and I, I, we did touch upon this quite a bit at the start of our interview, but in chapter three, you talk about the heterogeneity of competing Islamic traditions or different Islamic traditions rather in Indonesia. And they're often ambivalent relationship to ideas of Arabness in the Middle East, as well as within itself. Um, a question that I had was um, what you call the Arab other abroad, um, whether ideas of this Arab other and how it was imagined, did these change um, as people sort of traveled to the Arab world and came back? Were ideas of Arabness situated locally, did these change as people from Indonesia traveled and then came back? Because um, in the case of the labor migrants, citizenship isn't sort of permanent residency or citizenship isn't viable, right? So uh, when people return, do local ideas of Arabness change? Um, and um, yes, that was a question that I had, which um, I wanted to ask. Yeah. Um, that's a very interesting question. It's, um, it is uh, quite interesting to see that, especially in the context of labor migration, in the return context or the home context of labor migrants, um, there seems to be not so much change. And this is something that also other researchers of labor migration have found, that uh, whereas the experiences of labor migrants are often very intimate and um, of course, different from pilgrims who travel in travel units and who go to the holy sites to pray. Labor migrants live in private households. They really get to know Arab people. And um, their experiences are not always negative. Some of them also become friends with their employers, especially the ones who work in care-related work, uh, who care for elderly mm. people or for children. They also develop um, empathy and affection for the people they care for. and. Um, in these cases, the women I talked to, they did have a very fine-grained knowledge of Arab culture and customs, and they would tell me about wedding parties in Arab society and how people there choose their wife and husband and what they see as the differences between Indonesia and the Arab world. So they are, in a way, also anthropologists or they are experts mm -hmm. on cultural differences. But then again in their families, they would not talk about it a lot. And uh, several women also told me that they lost their Arabic skills because they don't speak any Arabic anymore once they returned. And um, they said, ah, finally, someone is asking us about our experiences. A lot of them were quite happy to talk to me, um, saying that their husbands or their children would not ask so much about their experiences. And um, I think that's the reason why some images of the Arab, Arab world are being reproduced in Indonesia and are not being changed by these nuanced experiences of the labor migrants. Um, so that's something I found quite interesting. I think that it changes for the labor migrants themselves personally, but not mm -hmm. um, on a broader societal level. That is fascinating. And 
Yeah, that 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 really is intriguing, especially, you know, even if you have to think about in a comparative context for people who are working on, let's say, migrant communities, other migrant communities in the Persian Gulf. And, you know, it'd be very interesting to sort of take your findings, your sort of fieldwork findings, sort of put them in conversation with what others have found across other mm-hmm. migrant communities, yeah. Yeah. which would be very interesting. Maybe I can just add to this that um, I've found uh, from one of my colleagues at the University of Freiburg, Stefan Rota, who works on Filipino migrants, that in the Philippines, labor migrants are organized in bigger labor migrant agencies. And also the uh, protection of human rights has a stronger lobby in the Philippines. And um, it seems that in the Philippines, there is a stronger sense of abuse and exploitation are structural problems. Um, And of course, there is also many more people from the Philippines who migrate. And whereas in Indonesia, there is this sense of individual failure that I described before. So I think this is a big difference between um, the Philippines and Indonesia, which probably is also one of the reasons of the different representations of um, the Arab world um, or the migration experience back home. Absolutely. And I I think these differences are really, really important because... um, I think sometimes there is this tendency to homogenize the migrant communities that sort of work as quote-unquote labor migrants in the Gulf, but um, exploring the differences really does bring out a lot of nuance. Um, And if we had to move to the final chapter, um, which is, um, it, it talks a lot about the kinds of guidance that people follow in the symbolic capital of travel experiences. And Um, The question I had was basically, you kind of take us through the many different kinds of local guidance that migrants and pilgrims receive for their journeys to the Gulf. And given that travel to the Arab world is regarded as socially, morally, spiritually meaningful in local Indonesian society, I wanted to ask you, uh, what is the symbolic capital of travel experiences to the Gulf? Tell us about the kinds of guidance that people choose to follow. And I think this goes back to um, an earlier discussion that we had about why does guidance matter uh, in mobility? Um, and why are some forms of guidance more preferred than others? And to what extent do individuals get to choose the guidance they follow? Yeah, so I found during my research that guidance matters very much for people, that um in this field of transnational mobility, there is a lot of insecurity. Um, people have the longing to go to Mecca, for example, but it seems like such a complicated undertaking. All the bureaucratic procedures, even making a passport, signing up, um, putting one's name on a mail on a waiting list, paying the fees um, for the pilgrimage, interacting with these government agencies. So for many. Um, people whom I met, it seemed like it is very complicated to do this. And the same goes for labor migration, where in addition to all these bureaucratic procedures, there is also the insecurity of going alone abroad and working in a family. So I found that among both migrants and pilgrims, there is a demand for guidance. Guidance is something they are looking for. And when I talk about guidance, um, I mean, various um, forms of guidance, like the institutional guidance through government departments or private agencies, but also the personal guidance um, through people who have 
done a pilgrimage or um, who have migrated before. And also the more general guidance through guiding narratives, guiding representations, um, recurring um, images and ideas. And um, I found that this sense of insecurity um, creates a strong demand for guidance and people turn to guiding actors and institutions. And then on the side of these guiding actors and institutions, guidance turns out to be profitable. Offering um, guidance, um, for example, for travel agencies can be a profitable business, but also on a much smaller scale for personal private intermediaries. For example, someone um, who introduces um, another, a friend to the idea of doing an Umrah pilgrimage that people are together in a Quran reading group and they talk about this idea of going to Mecca and it's like taking someone on the hand and one person knows a bit more um, than the other. And um, sometimes it's very blurry if someone is a friend or an intermediary and where intermediaries also become business uh, men and women. Um, sometimes travel agencies would give people who bring another person along a certain discount, for example. And then people are being included um, in this business and also in labor migration. Um, I, For example, in one village, um, an older woman told me that she never wanted to be an agent in labor migration, but that she was a teacher in a local school. And um, some women who had graduated from the school, they didn't really find work and they didn't see good perspectives um, in the village. And they were asking her if she knows anything of possibilities for labor migration. And then mm -hmm. she was um, asking around in her family. And then there was actually someone who went on labor migration. Then she connected people. Then later, the same people asked her if she has a bank account and if they could use her bank account to transfer remittances because they didn't have a bank account. And slowly she became this labor migrant agent, which, um, as she said, was not her intention. But um, in the end, she became, and then people would also give her, um, would acknowledge um, her services through financial gifts. So it's not always a clear fee or it's not always a specific percentage of um to what extent intermediaries um, profit from giving guidance. Uh, it's um, an interrelated process of people who demand guidance and others who give guidance. And in some cases, this is more institutionalized and in others, it can be really informal. Um, and in terms of um, capital, I mean, there is this financial capital, there is also the social capital of um, <laughs> networks and connections between people and the symbolic um, capital, the symbolic capital of having accomplished um, the Hajj and uh, by the way also a lot of labor migrants do accomplish the Hajj even though their mobility is labeled as labor migration um, mm. a lot of them while they are working on the Arabian Peninsula they do accomplish the Hajj. And what I found striking is that not everyone has the same access to this symbolic capital of the Hajj, even though labor migrants might have done the Hajj um, because they didn't do it through the official government channels and they didn't do it with an Indonesian travel unit and they didn't have a return celebration when they come, came back because they did it while they were living and working there. Um, 
it's not the same effect in society. And uh, it made me realize that there is not only the guidance to enable the physical mobility, but there is also the guidance to enable social mobility or sociocultural recognition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this also goes back to something you had uh, brought up earlier, where these agents, or I don't know if you can even think of them as sort of um, brokers, or religious brokers mm -hmm. of some kind, yeah. um, how these people uh, sort of believe themselves to become pious as they help people make these journeys, um, whether it's Umrah or the longer Hajj. And yeah, it is the the interplay between sort of mediating these these journeys and sort of becoming pious by helping others is really, really fascinating. It's um, something that I hadn't really considered until your book. So thank you for that. Um, and we're, we're slowly approaching the end of our interview. Um, but before we end, um, there's just two, there are just two final questions I'd like to ask you. Um, the first one is, what do you hope scholars working on Indian Ocean mobilities uh, very broadly, what do you hope um, we'd be able to take from your book? Um, and what new directions of research is your work pointing us to? Um, if you could just say a couple of words about that. Yeah, I think with this whole topic of mobility, there have been different approaches of studying mobility. And in recent years, there has been also an emphasis on fixity and on immobility or on bounded mobility and control and a lot of scholars have recognized that um, mobility is not, um, by far, not always free-floating, but um, on, the, on the contrary, it's often strictly controlled um, mm -hmm. and not accessible for everyone. But what I found in this example of labor migration and pilgrimage in Indonesia and the overall engagement with the Arab world is that there is something in between free-floating mobility and um, control or fixity or immobility and this is what I describe as guided mobility, that um, there are forms of mobility where there is this interdependent relationship between the ones who enable and also control mobility on the one hand, mm -hmm. and on the other hand, those who become mobile. And um, I, I think it's very fruitful to look at um, this interdependency and um, also at, on, at forms of uh, mixed migration where, um, for instance, some pilgrims would use a visa for the minor pilgrimage for the Umrah, but then they would stay in Saudi Arabia and work while waiting for the Hajj season. And that way they can do the Hajj even though they did not register for the official um, annual quota and they did not put their name on the waiting list. So these are forms of migration that um, we can only see when we create an awareness for mixed migration and um, maybe where also forms of mobility go back to historical forms of mobility where there was this mixture of studying, working um, and doing the Hajj um, in the Hijaz. So I think this is something that um, I want to suggest with the book, that uh, with this concept of guided mobility, we can look at um, the in-between places of mixed migration and um, categories of 
being a broker, but at the same time also being a migrant um, to create more fluid categories. Absolutely. And those are very, very productive and helpful suggestions that would, I think, certainly take the study of the Indian Ocean world and you know the incredible work that's already coming out from this field. I think it would really you know, enhance what's already going on. And, um, and finally, would you mind telling us a little bit about any projects that you might be working on currently or any future projects that are in the works? Yeah, sure. Um, I'd be happy to. <laughs> I'm now um, speaking from Jerusalem. So after mm -hmm. um, my journeys between Indonesia and Germany um, and my work, which methodolo methodologically focused on returnees from labor migration and pilgrimage, I, um, I now find myself um, in the Middle East. And um, I realized during um, that research for the book that um, in this booming pilgrimage business, there is also a lot of um, Christian travels, not only um, Muslim religious tourism, but also Christian religious mm -hmm. tourism, where for many Christian Indonesians, a journey to Jerusalem is almost like an equivalent of their Muslim compatriots Hajj. So this was something I found fascinating and I thought I have to look into this. And um, I was lucky enough to meet um, Roni Dritschi at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem mm -hmm. and started a postdoc with her. And this gave me the opportunity to research um, Indonesian religious tourism to Jerusalem in Jerusalem. So not as before to research with returnees, but to to actually be here um, during the travels. And um, then I also realized that there is, uh, of course, the majority are Christian groups, but now there are also more and more Muslim groups uh, who do the Al-Aqsa pilgrimage um, to Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. And it's, um, it's like a package, um, pilgrimage package tour that usually starts in Cairo, then goes to Israel and Palestine and ends in Jordan. And um, yeah, that's what I'm working on or what I was working on until the beginning of the pandemic. Um, mm. I accompanied a lot of um, Indonesian Muslim and Christian travel groups um, on their journey. Um, and I also tried to understand what this means for the common Indonesian national identity as feeling united as Indonesian national citizens, but then um, also on the Muslim-Christian relations. What does it mean to share a travel destination as a shared um, interreligious um, travel destination, but to be in different uh, travel groups? That's one of the um, topics in this new project. And also now during the pandemic, um, the use of social media and new technologies, um, pilgrimages on Zoom, um, that's some of the topics I work on right now. That is absolutely fascinating. And I cannot wait to read some of the work that comes out of this new project, especially the whole Muslim-Christian relations thing and sharing of um, religious destinations. That is fascinating. But thank you. Thank you so much, Miriam, for joining me here today and for taking the time to speak with me and talk more about your work. I absolutely enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you very much for your in encouraging and um, very interesting and vivid questions. No, my absolute pleasure. Thanks, Miriam. <laughs>